Good to see you guys. It's really great to be back. I want to thank you for extending to us a time to get away. My wife and I were up in Maine for the last, well, she came for three weeks. I was there for almost five weeks. I preached in a little church up there and lived in the parsonage and have been ministering there for many years. But it was really, really good for our souls and very, very refreshing. I'm excited to be back. I have not forgotten you. My love and prayers have been with you, and I'm happy to come back and share God's word with you. I want to tell what great things the Lord has done, but it really was a great chance just to get away. And um, some of you may know I've been living in Bucks County since 1992. I've been teaching at Cairn University for many, many years, but uh, almost all of that time I've had the privilege of being a teaching pastor in three churches. For six years, I was at Edgeley Christian Church in Bristol. For six years, I was at um, Chelton Baptist Church out in Dreshertown. In the last 14 years, I've been here at Riverstone Church, and it's been a great blessing. But, you know, I, I, want, you to, I want, want to start out by giving a praise to the Lord. A church family is such an important thing, to have people walk with you and pray with you. And many of you know that our son, for many years, lost his way with drugs and a lot of things that he struggled with. And um, even as we talked about a church family, I thank God for our church family, particularly for Tom and Robin, Hurst, who really took a special interest in helping Jordan, and as God's grace worked in his life. I'm sharing this this morning to tell you that on August 11th, 2019, which is today, Jordan is preaching his first sermon at Edgeley Christian Church. So I, I thank you guys, and I thank the Lord, and just ask that you would pray for him that the Lord would give him joy and use him for God's glory. So we had a restful, encouraging time. We've been studying the gospel of Mark. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. But I do want to say this. It was very encouraging to be a part of the vision series that Bob and Austin and John preached. I had a chance to listen to the messages. If you have not heard the messages really want you to take the time to listen as we're talking about strengthening our evangelism, our discipleship to produce mature believers and then reproduce healthy churches. So there was lots of good stuff that was shared and I'm fully engaged with them. We're excited about what's going to happen in the days to come. Ironically, today's passage, and this is cool because many of you know that this Friday we're sending a team to Lebanon and Syria. We've been partnering with the believers over there who are in great opposition to the gospel. Today's sermon in the providence of God is called Jesus Visits Lebanon and Syria. That's really what happened. Here all these years, we thought Austin was the first one to, <laughs> to visit Lebanon and Syria. When in fact, uh, Jesus visited Lebanon and Syria, and we're gonna look at that in Mark chapter seven. Now, just to bring you up to speed, remember, Sometimes people say, oh, you know, when the guys wrote the Gospels, they're just telling it the way they saw it. They're giving their angle. It's like, no, that's not what they're doing. Each Gospel writer being led by the Holy Spirit, most of them all saw the same stuff. Most of them had the same teachings of Jesus, but they chose to include or exclude certain things about Christ because they had a particular Spirit-led mission in mind. Of course, they're all pointing us to Jesus, but each of the Gospels was written to a different audience, 
And so it's not like, oh, he didn't know what this guy said, or oh, wow, look how similar that is, or oh, he changed the story. But we know from the background of Mark that Mark was written to Roman Christians. And at that time, Christians in Rome were being persecuted. Not Christians all over the world, Christians in Rome. And so Mark had a particular vision to encourage these struggling disciples who were facing a lot of opposition. So as he's writing the life of Christ, he has intentions in mind to encourage those who are struggling. And so the Gospel of Mark particularly portrays the sufferings of Jesus and invites us to join in with them and realize that Christ came to to suffer and serve and we follow him in this. And so we've titled this series, and it's not trying to be clever, Clarifying Jesus and then committing to the journey. And the reason for that is as you read through Mark, in the first eight chapters, what Mark chooses to focus on is how difficult it was for the disciples to truly figure out who Jesus was. So you have this contrast. Every time Jesus encounters a demon, the demons will say, we know who you are. But time and again, the people, when Jesus will do a miracle, they go, who is this guy? But even his inner circle, his disciples, as he's doing things in front of them, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, even they're going, who is this guy? What, 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 what's going on here? And frequently Jesus will go, are you guys so dull? Do you not get it? Do you not understand? Do you not yet believe? But, but the, the, sort of the pinnacle point of the Gospel of Mark is finally in chapter 8 of Mark, Peter figures out, who is this guy? And so Jesus says, yeah, who do you think I am? And he goes, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, ding, 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 you get it, you graduated. However, now we have to go back to school. And remember, we talked about this. They're now sophomores. Remember I told you that? Sophomore comes from two Greek words. Sophos, which means wise, moron. That's true. A sophomore is a wise moron. You know a little bit, but you think you know more than you do. So in Mark chapter 8, when the disciples come to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is like, that's good. You get it. But now he says, but now I need to reteach you what does it mean to be the Messiah? Because in their mind, the Messiah was going to lead this great military coup and they were going to get power with Jesus. So this isn't too hard for us to grasp. If you pay attention to the news, um, all over the world there's political turmoil. Right now, Kashmir is struggling with India and they're, they're on the verge of a possible revolt because India has put, put a, a lockdown. If you follow what's going on in Hong Kong, what's going on in Syria, there's frequently these domestic squabbles. In the time of Jesus, the Jews were expecting a Messiah because they were under this oppression from the Romans. So in their mind, the Messiah, we're just going to hoist him up on our shoulder, we're all going to grab a sword, and he's going to lead us, and we're going to beat back all of the Romans, and we're going to reign with him. And so in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going, okay, now that you get that I'm the Messiah, you've clarified that, now you need to commit to the journey of what you didn't expect. I'm not going to reign right now. They're going to kill me. And they're like, huh? So the second half of Mark, three times he tells them, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. It's not what you think. And they just can't grasp it. And so Mark is inviting us to say, will you join Jesus on the journey of service and suffering because there's a cross 
before a crown. So we're almost to the midpoint. We're in chapter 7, and Jesus right now is up in Galilee. The political and religious hostility toward him is growing. So if you're familiar, remember we talk about the Holy Land. Jerusalem is down towards the Sea of Galilee, about, I'm sorry, towards the Dead Sea. 70 miles north is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is up there. He's doing a lot of his ministry because it's just too dangerous down in Jerusalem. They're constantly, the religious leaders are trying to kill him. Last time we looked in chapter 7, the religious leaders from Jerusalem traveled up to Galilee to, to confront him and say, Where did you, who do you think you are? Now there's political opposition even in Galilee. Herod has beheaded John the Baptist. There's a great stir over Christ. So what we're going to find here is Mark's going to introduce us to a trip that Jesus took to Lebanon and Syria. None of the other three Gospels record this trip in detail. And so it raises a lot of questions like, why would Jesus leave the promised land? Why would he go up to Lebanon and Syria? And we can't answer for sure. Obviously, he was having some divine appointments, but Mark puts this here on purpose. And in all three of the stories we're going to look at this morning, Jesus has left the promised land, and he's now ministering in Gentile territory, which to a Jew, you don't do that. In fact, when Jews came back from leaving the country, they would dust off their feet because Gentiles were disgusting and unclean, and we shouldn't be around them. So it's staggering, first of all, that Jesus goes to Lebanon and Syria, but even the way that Mark describes his route is bizarre. It's a 120-mile trip. But as one commentary said, it would be like being in Washington, D.C. and telling your family, I'm going to go to Virginia through Philadelphia. You're like, that doesn't make sense. So this trip has left some Bible scholars going, Mark must have got this mixed up because it doesn't make sense. And I go, hey, it makes sense to me because Jesus is the way, and he has his ways app on. He might not be taking the shortest route, but there's a reason why he took this trip, and we're going to see as we tie this together that some pretty cool things happen on this trip. So start with me in verse 24. Let me just pray that God's word will be used by him for his glory. Father, your word is life. Your word is alive. We need it. It is our bread. It is our comfort. It is our strength. We cannot live by bread alone. Father, feed us from the word. May we be truly feeding on Jesus right now. And for those who have not found him, may your word give life. You said the spirit profits, the flesh profits nothing. Your words are spirit and life. If there's anyone here who's not born again, awaken them to the knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sin through the mercy of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Start with me in verse 24. It says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. Now this would be modern-day Lebanon, right? Why did Jesus go to Lebanon? In fact, Josephus, a historian at that time, said that the people of Tyre were their greatest enemies. They hated them. Jesus, why? this would be like Jonah going to Nineveh. Why would you go to them? And when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it. Now, there's this weird messianic secret in Mark. Jesus keeps going, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, 
don't tell anyone. And the Bible doesn't really tell us why, but we suspect that the primary reason why is because Jesus couldn't even take time to eat. These people were mobbing him, and their motivations and their aspirations were so confused that literally the first time he fed the 5,000, it said they tried to make him a king by force. Right? Think about this. So here they are in Galilee, and, and they're starting chanting, Jesus is king. Man, the Romans would have come so quickly, and, and just there would have been a bloody civil war. And so Jesus is trying to keep his messiahship on the lowdown. Not because he doesn't want the world to know, but everything in its time. But as usual, we read in Mark, the more he tries to keep it quiet, it says he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, before we talk about this, I want you to think about this woman because Mark's going to go, let me just read you her resume. Let me describe this woman. Now, to us, it might not be as, a, as an affront, but in that culture, she had a lot of things against her. Number one, women were not valued to the degree that they should have been. Number two, she was a Gentile. Number three, she was a Syrophoenician. So Mark actually adds in verse 25, or verse 26, the woman was a Gentile. Who cares? Well, just think about that. Jews didn't like Gentiles. Jews figured, we're God's people. You're not, right? Secondly, she was a Syrophoenician race. Oh, that's not, you probably don't want to have that on your resume. Oh, by the way, did I mention that I have 12 felonies, right? So Jews hated Syrophoenicians. So she didn't have a lot going for her, but one thing she did have was a need. And what's really interesting to me is, first of all, I want you to sympathize. Anyone who has kids gets this. You can never be happier than your saddest child. Because while your life might be gone gloriously, if your child is in pain, if your child's in distress, there's always that sorrow in your heart because you love them. And so put yourself in the shoes of this woman. When it says she had an unclean spirit, her daughter had a demon. And we learn from the Gospels that demons sometimes were ruthless. They're always cruel, but remember one guy came to Jesus. He says, this demon keeps trying to kill my child. It throws him in the fire. It throws him in the water and tries to drown him. Now, those of you who have a child with special needs, maybe on the spectrum or something, any of us who, who have seen and tried to enter into the pain and, and, and difficulty, imagine that on, on steroids of having a child who's demon-possessed and realizing that, man, there's nothing I could do about it. As an unbeliever, hopelessness, fear, and sorrow. So somehow this woman, though she's a Gentile, it wasn't like what Jesus was doing was held in a little box. Everyone was talking about it. It was very much like, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Rahab the harlot, when the spies came into the promised land, right, Rahab the harlot had heard about the Jews. We don't know how, but everyone was talking about them. But the difference was, while the rest of the people of, of her city were against the Jews, she believed 
that the God of the Jews was the real God. So I'm going to suggest that this Syrophoenician woman understood that the, she had heard the Jews are the people of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that Jesus can cast out demons. So when she hears about it, she comes and she fell at his feet. Now what's striking is the last person who fell at Jesus' feet was the diametric opposite of this woman. He was Jairus, the Jewish synagogue ruler. Earlier in Mark, he came and fell at Jesus' feet. Kind of shows you, it doesn't matter whether you're from the uttermost, the guttermost, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. One thing we all have in common is when you, you see that you need Jesus, come and fall at his feet. And so here she comes, falling at his feet. Now, Jesus, this, this answer, like sometimes Jesus, I, I, love, I love Jesus and I love sometimes his answers, but sometimes they, I go, did he just say that? Like earlier in the Gospel of Mark, he looks at his disciples, he goes, are you so dull, right? I'm a professor. Can you imagine me saying that? I wouldn't be working there anymore. Steve goes, uh, can you just, uh, are you that dumb, seriously, right? This time Jesus says something that at first looks like one of the most extreme insults. Did he just say that? Look, she's like, Jesus, please, cast a demon out of my daughter. Look what Jesus says. He says to her, let the children be satisfied first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, at some point, you have one of them South Philly moments. Are you talking to me? Right? Because if you engage in this saying, right, who's who? Who's the dog? Her. Did Jesus just call her a dog? Particularly because we know that that's what Jews said about Gentiles. They called them dogs, right? And at first reading, you're like, wow, I thought Jesus was, was not like that. I thought Jesus was not like, you know, gender, you know, he's not going to, he doesn't pick any race or anything. Jesus is, is compassionate to everybody. But it's really interesting that the woman's response and the word that's used here is kind of a window to understand what's really going on. There's two words for dog in the New Testament. This word is not the normal word for dog because frankly, when you read the Bible, there's not a whole lot of good things said about dogs. Maybe the, the most comforting thing about dogs is when the poor man's laying at, at, the, at the rich man's feet and the dogs are licking his wounds, right? But in this case, the word that's used is uh, uh, what's called a diminutive. It means little dog, okay? Now, for some of you, this is, you, you totally get it, but if anybody's here from other countries, if you talk to people from other countries, they'll say, you Americans are crazy. You are way over the top with your dogs, right? You spent what? You did what for your dog? First time I had this happen was I had a little Jack Russell, and we had some friends over um, who weren't believers um, from a European countries, so I don't want to pick on any countries, right? Because... Um, our dog, while they were there, got hit by a car. And the neighbor said, your dog got hit by a car. And his little leg was busted up badly. And so I said to these friends, I said, listen, I got to take my dog to the hospital. And, and as we're talking, they're like, well, that's going to cost money, right? You're going to spend money. 
So this guy from another country, and I'll try to keep it neutral so you don't know what accent this is because I don't know what accent it is. He goes, why you do this? Just kill this dog and get another one, right? Just kill him, get another one. My kids were like this big. They hate that man from this day <laughs> forth, right? right? But now think about this, right? Many cultures don't get the idea that dogs become part of the family, right? And, and, and so as I thought about this, and I've done some thinking about this. I remember somebody once saying to me, ah, there's nothing good to say about dogs in the Bible. I go, yeah, but the Lord reminded me of something. However, the concept of an animal becoming like family is in the Bible. If you remember the story of, of Nathan, when he confronted David about David's sin, how David had taken Uriah's wife, he used a parable. He said there was a, there was a man who had one little sheep. His neighbor was a wealthy man who had thousands of sheep. But when the rich guy who had thousands of sheep had company and he wanted to have lamb chops, guess what he did? He went and killed the poor man's only little sheep. And David said, that man should die. And Nathan said, you're that man. But in the context of that story, when he described that little sheep, you know what he said? He said that little sheep was like a daughter to him. He held it in its arms and it drank from its cup, right? And some of you are, are like, yeah, that's what, you know. And I'm like, okay, maybe that's a little over the top, right? So for example, um, my neighbor once said, so, so I, I feel you. Now I'm gonna get to a point here about dogs. I feel you, pets can become dear to us, but please don't go to excess like my neighbor once said to me. If it comes down to my dog or my kid, I'd probably put my son to sleep. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And of course he was kidding, but some people, I get it. Like, animals are not equal to humans. When Jesus sent thousands of pigs to die into the sea, it shows that one soul of a man is worth, we don't even know if animals have souls. And the Bible does even speak of, some people are, if you're watching what's going on right now in L.A., there's, there's a, a rat infestation, and so they're now poisoning the rats. They try to, all these homeless people have rats. There's a great outcry, stop poisoning these rats. And I'm going, please stop. In fact, the Bible speaks of some animals. Second Peter talks about unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born to be captured and killed. So within the context, I want you to note something here, that this woman shows great insight. Because what Jesus meant was, right now, ma'am, I'm here for the Jews first. And as you read the Gospels, you see that. In fact, Jesus, when he first sent out the disciples, he said, don't talk to any Gentiles. He said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Minister the Gospel first to the Jews. And that's a theme in the Bible when God called Abraham and established the nation of Israel. The Jewish people, by reason of the promises of the gospel, should get the first shot at the gospel. Jesus came to the Jews first, and that's still true. Romans chapter 1 says the gospel of Jesus is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So what Jesus is telling this woman is basically, ma'am, right now I have to offer the food to the children. But by him using the little dogs rather than filthy animals, the outdoor dogs, 
he's, he's by implication implying that there, there will be, because they, some of them had these little dogs as household pets, God's going to bring some other ones into the family who aren't Jews. Now, that was as true as it was in Jesus' day as it is today, and that is Jews are still the chosen people of God. However, that does not automatically mean that if you're a Jew, you're going to heaven. And it's true today, and it was true in Jesus' day. He would say to his peers, the Jews, he goes, <clears throat> do not think that just because you're a Jew and a descendant of Abraham that you're in. He said, I, I could raise up stones to Abraham, and many are going to come from east and west, and some of you are going to be cast out. However, we do need to bring the gospel to Jewish people first. We need to offer it to them. In fact, Michael Byrd, who's a famous author, um, I use his commentary when I teach the book of Romans at Karen. Whenever he meets a Jewish person, he says, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. And they look at him like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, listen, I'm, I'm a Gentile, but I'm a Christian. I just want to thank you for being willing to share the blessings of the Messiah because really he's, he's for you first. And you're like, well, that seems weird, but actually it's not weird. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 11, he said, I'm a missionary to Gentiles. He says, but I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in hopes that I could provoke Jewish people to jealousy and basically say, let them see what they're missing. It's kind of like walking up to a Jewish person and saying, thanks for letting me go to your party. It's awesome. And they're going, what party? Yeah, the messianic party, the forgiveness of sins through the Lamb of God and the hope of his kingdom. You know, the gospel promises of the Messiah. Thanks for sharing them in hopes that they'll go back and go, wait, am I missing something? And so here Jesus is saying to the women, right now, I'm not yet bringing the gospel to Gentiles. But look at her insight. In fact, when she answers Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to her, I haven't seen anybody else who had as much faith as this woman. When I preached in Israel, I didn't see this kind of faith. Look at her faith and insight. Look what she says. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She sees her position. She understands that as a Gentile, hey, Lord, but, but, but there's more than enough. You overflow with abundance. You're going to come to the Gentiles also. And Jesus says, because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon having departed. And you know, what I want you to see here is that Christians should never get over, particularly if you're a Gentile, the blessing of God broadening the gospel doors. Because there was a time when the gospel came primarily to the Jews. But at the end of Jesus' life, he threw the, the gates wide open. No longer was it primarily the Jews. He said, go to all the nations. And maybe you haven't had an aha moment yet about that. You see, Christians often have aha moments. The first aha moment you should have is about that right there. Some of you still haven't had an aha moment. You, you can repeat with your lips, Jesus died for our sins. But you do not yet understand profoundly what that means. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That on that cross, he shed his blood so that I could be forgiven. 
He took my hell in six hours one Friday, and he said, it is finished. Jesus paid it all, and my righteousness and my acceptance with God is found in the cross. And I will preach nothing but Christ crucified. And, and you and I don't ever get over that. Don't ever get over that. Because when we get to heaven, we're still going to sing that song. You are worthy, O Lord, because you were slain. And there are times I get cold to it. I got to fall down on my knees and say, Lord Jesus, it's all about you and the cross. But there are other ha-ha movements. When you learn about election, when you realize that, wait, I didn't choose God. He chose me. I'm not a Christian simply because I'm smarter than the other bears. I'm a Christian because by his doing, I came to Christ because he made me alive. He opened my eyes. And then there's another aha moment. And that is when you realize, like, I'm a Gentile and I'm saved. Lord, your mercy spilled out to the nations. And so this morning, I want to remind you that God is on the move. The gospel is spilling over like bread to the nations. If you're following what's happening in the world, it's so exciting. Christians are getting saved in droves. In Lebanon, Muslims are coming to Christ. Right now, they're being persecuted severely in India, but they're coming to Christ in droves. And not only is the gospel going to the nations, and maybe God's going to burden some of you to go to the nations, but you know what? God's bringing the nations to us. I was in Moosehead Lake for the last five weeks, Greenville, Maine. It's the middle of nowhere. It has a sign on the city limits that says where there's more moose than people. But one day I was in the little country store. It's just a little um, grocery store, the only one for miles. And the girl behind the counter, I could tell, you ain't from here. So listening to her, I said, excuse me, what country are you from? She said, I'm from Turkey. And she's working at the deli, so don't, 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 don't read into that, right? So she says, um, I'm here. There's nine of us on a work-study program. Um, three from Romania, three from Turkey, one from Spain, a couple other countries. And I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. That's neat. Welcome. But I began to get a burden like, oh, wow. So I went to one of the elders. I said, oh, oh no, the next day. Okay, ready for this? The next day, I'm in another store, and I look up, and here's that girl from Turkey. Nobody else around. And I remembered her name. I said, oh, hi, Zerba. I said, um, oh, it's so good to see you. I said, um, tell me more about what you're doing. I said, did, did, I, did you know I'm a pastor? She goes, do you know, I've been to a church once. I said, really? As a Muslim, you've been to a church? I said, well, I, I would love to have you and your friends over. Would you come and, and, and just, I'd love to meet your friends. And she said, yes, yes, we would like that. So meanwhile... I go to one of the elders' homes, and he and his wife, and she says to me, Tom, I have a burden for Muslim women. But there are no Muslims in Greenville. I said, there are now. <laughs> and I pulled a Zacchaeus on her. I said, and they're coming to your house. <laughs> and we did. By the grace of God, those three Muslim girls came over for pizza, right? And it was hysterical because one of them said, you know, it's mostly Muslim in Turkey, but there are a lot of people who say they're Muslim, but they don't practice it. And our response was, yeah, same here. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't practice it, right? But 
my burden grew because I said, Lord, I thought to myself, Lord, I want to reach all of these people, at least present the gospel to them. So I poked around and I found out that there was a lady in town who owned a restaurant who was the coordinator of this international program. And so I thought to myself, I've got to meet her. And somehow maybe I can just say, hey, I want to have a get-together for these internationals. That Sunday, as I finished preaching, a lady in the church comes up and says, I want you to meet my friend. This is her first time here. Oh, pleased to meet you. What, what do you do? I own a restaurant in town. I go, wait, which restaurant is it? She goes, yeah, it's that one. I said, are you in charge of the international students? She said, yes, I am. Now, what I didn't know, even more profound, hallelujah to the glory of Jesus, is that this lady who owns that restaurant, for the past year, two ladies in our church had befriended her and frequently been sharing Christ with her. And in the sovereign grace of God, that day she decides to come to church. I also did not know that at the end of the service, I found out later, she leaned over to her two girlfriends that brought her and said, with tears in her eyes, praise the Lord, now I know I'm saved, right? So I don't know that she's just gotten saved. She comes, I'm getting goosebumps, she comes to the door and I'm talking to her. I don't know that she's a Christian. I think she's just a seeker. So I'm trying to be wise. I said, you know, I would love, since you're in charge of those international students, to have a get-together and try to, to talk to them all about Christ. And she goes, me too. I want them to hear about faith. Now, again, I don't, I don't know, wait, what just happened, right? So God is bringing the nations to us. So they're here till October. Pray for these students. Pray that many of them will be open and that will continue to build these relationships and have an opportunity. Pray for this store owner who now is a professing believer. It's just wonderful to see this little phrase, the children's bread is now given to the dogs. And if you're a Gentile, eat it up. Feed on Jesus and give him glory. Now let's look at the second encounter. This time it says, Jesus went out from the region of Tyre. He came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, if you've been paying attention, which some of you have been, you remember that the last time Jesus was in Decapolis, it didn't go real well. Decapolis is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is godless pagan, right? The Romans had a garrison there, 5,000 soldiers. These people were godless pagans. The last time Jesus went there, you see, Satan's able to roam everywhere, but he's got some high-level headquarters. Book of Revelation talks about one church said, Jesus said, I know you dwell where Satan's throne is. Decapolis was in darkness and held in a stronghold. And once Jesus announced that he was going to go to Decapolis, the devil was doing what he could to make that difficult. So on their trip across the sea to the first time they came to Decapolis, you'll remember that they hit this terrible storm that almost drowned them. And then if you remember, when they landed at Decapolis, a violent, crazy, demon-possessed maniac comes rushing at Jesus. And then in the sovereign grace of God, you remember that Jesus heals that guy, which we should celebrate, but because of this loss of pigs, 
do you remember that the people of Decapolis begged him, would you just please go away? Please leave, please leave, please leave. And he left. Now he's coming back for another visit. Why is it that this time, when he arrives in Decapolis, they bring to him deaf and dumb people? They bring to him many sick people. I'm going to tell you why I think it was. Do you remember the last thing Jesus said before he left? The crazy, demon-possessed maniac said to Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus said, no. He said, I want you to go back and tell your friends and family what the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And don't forget, the Gospel of Mark says, and he went from town to town. And so this little crazy, demon-possessed guy has now done pre-evangelism preaching his testimony of what God did for him. And this time, the people are receptive to Jesus. And you know the Lord's still doing that? Many of you might know Pastor Joe Foch down in, in Calvary Chapel. When he first met Chuck Smith, he was not in a good place mentally. He was semi off his rocker. You can read about it in, in, in the book called Harvest. In fact, I couldn't help but think about this just Yesterday, I was driving in my car and I see this young man in his 20s running down Dorm Road with a backpack, sweating like he's running for his life. And so I pulled up a little further. I said, hey, man, do you need a ride? He said, yes, sir. I said, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to Pendle Mental Health. I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I had to leave work. I'm losing it. I said, well, come on. And we pulled into there. I said, well, why did you choose to come here? He goes, I just need somebody to talk to. And he begins to share. And the more he's talking, the more I'm going, wow, this guy is profoundly in trouble. He's not well. And so I thought of the very story of the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 because there were many parallels. This guy had suffered all kinds of things. I said, can I read you a story from the Bible? And I promise you before God, every time I tried to read it, I held the Bible, he's sitting right next to me. Every time I started in Mark chapter 5, now there was a demon possessed, he started talking. Let me tell you what happened. I said, okay, that's, but, but let me read you this. As soon as I try to read from Mark chapter 5, and you know what my sister, I, I, I'm sitting there going, something demonic going on here. I cannot read the Bible to this man. So I said, could I pray for you? He said, yeah. I put my hand on his neck, and I prayed in the name of Jesus. I said, Lord, if this man has a demon, would you free him? Would you, would you calm his mind? Would you give him clarity to listen to the word of God? And at that point when I got done praying, I read the passage, and he engaged, and, and, and he, he was like, oh. So I'd love to tell you he got saved. He didn't, as far as I know, he didn't get saved. But he did say this. He goes, I don't need to go here. He goes, I've calmed down. I feel a lot better. And so I want you to pray for him. I gave him my card, you know, and and, and many people would just say, ah, he's a lunatic, just let him go, you know. But you know what? The Lord Jesus is alive and well on planet Earth. And I thought of Joe Foch, and I think to myself, hey, how about if one day this guy is a maniac who's become a missionary, and he's preaching Christ in the streets of Bucks County. And so pray for him. But anyway, so Jesus comes, and this time they welcome him. And they bring to him, verse 32, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they entreated him to lay his hand upon him. 
And again, these are Gentiles. He took them aside from the multitude by himself. Now again, Jesus is, is pretty interesting. Like, just when you think you might have an angle on what he's doing, he just does something different, right? Like, read into next week's chapter 8. He heals this blind man. He goes, can you see now? And the guy's going, not real good. Everyone looks like trees. And Jesus is like, all right, let me turn up the frequency. How about now? Can you see now? And the guy's like, yeah, now I can see. And you're like, wait, what? Is Jesus' battery low? So when you start reading about how Jesus healed in the different ways, just think a little bit. We can't always say for sure, but it's profound. Like, this is not his normal methodology. Look at verse 33. He took him aside from the multitude by himself. He put his finger in his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with his saliva. And you're like, that's gross. And I can't say why he did that. We do know that there was a lot of mythology and superstition, and they did see power in saliva. But, like, that's kind of weird. In fact, this morning I had a saliva moment because one of the brothers I hadn't seen, he's like, hey, Tom, good to see you. But just as he was about to shake my hand, I had gum in my mouth. I don't want to people gifts. So I took the gum, I threw it out. He goes, hey, Tom, never mind because I just touched my gum, right? You don't touch saliva. Jesus touches his tongue. But then it says he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. Please don't miss this. Even though Jesus is fully God, he was fully man. And it's mysterious, but as you're reading the Gospels, engage with Jesus. Like if you remember when he walked on water in Mark chapter 6 or Mark chapter 5, it says in the text, he was walking along intending to pass them by. You're like, wait, what? No, no, he, he put him in that storm because he was going to go, go, hey, hey, it's me, look, it's me. No, it says in Mark, he was intending to pass them by, but they saw him and they're like, ah, oh, and he's like, oh, don't be afraid, and he comes over. You're like, what? So the humanity and deity of Jesus is this profound mystery. So when Jesus sighs, enter into that, right? Engage with his emotion. I don't think he's gone, Oh, this is exhausting. Somehow he's, he's sighing. I'm going to suggest that knowing what I know about Jesus, it's compassion, it's mercy, it's sorrow, it's, it's engaging in the pain of this world. Jesus cares. I had a mother tell me this week, I can't get through to my daughter. It's heartbreaking. She won't talk to me. I said, yeah, and you know what? What do you think God thinks about us as we run from him, as we won't talk to him, as we avoid him? Enter into the compassion of Jesus as he sighs and he says, Afatha, be opened. And suddenly, the man can speak. And interestingly, read this in verse 35. It says, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. The Greek text says this, the bond of his tongue was loosed. The chain of his tongue was loosed. You think that's not a figure of Christianity? Think of the great hymns. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. I heard an old, old story how he made the lame to walk again. He caused the blind to see. Jesus looses our tongue. And there's a metaphor here of our very lives being set free. One of my favorite gospel hymns, the last line says this, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. This tongue was a, was a right-hand man for Satan for many years, but I am so thankful that the Lord set my tongue free to speak of Christ and to give him praise. And he did that for you, and he did it for me. 
And that's a beautiful thing. And so as he does that, he tells the man to be quiet, but they continue to proclaim him. But look at verse 37. It says, they were utterly astonished, saying he's done all things well. He's done all things well. I want you to know this. First time that was ever said is in Genesis chapter one. The Lord looked at everything he has done and he saw that it was very good. Now we know that in theory. We go, I know that Jesus can do anything and he's really good. Just ask me, God is good and I'll go all the time. But can you say that in your soul that even today, whatever's going on in my life, I believe that he has done all things well. Because frankly, there are times in my life where I'm going, God, I don't know what you are doing. I am totally confused. I'm doubtful. I'm fearful. I'm resentful. I had an experience while I was up in Maine that reminded me of this. A buddy of mine was telling me and my brother-in-law and my uh, nephew where to go fishing. And he's describing this outer space place in the woods where you have to walk and drive and hike and be careful because you could get lost and we're out in the middle of nowhere and I'm going Lord I'm so frustrated because I know there is a lake really close right now I know I'm near it but I can't find it but you're just looking down and you know exactly where it is and you know there's sort of a paradigm for life in that because there are times we just feel like God you're forgetting me. This isn't, you know, why am I so confused? Remember that the Lord is looking down from heaven and he's saying, I am causing all things to work together for good. And so Jesus truly does all things well. And I hope that'll encourage you. I hope that'll comfort you. If you're a child of God, it might not feel like he's got this, but trust me, he's got this. And he does all things well. And as the songwriter said, he does it in his time. Well, if we had time, we'd go on and read in detail the story of Jesus feeding 4,000. The difference between this account and the last one was, in the first one, it was Gentiles. I mean, Jews, 5,000 Jews, so there's men and women, 15,000 people. This time, it's Jews, but the text says, verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. And as we close this morning, I just want to focus on Jesus for a few moments. I want to remind you of several things. And the first one is this. Jesus spills over with mercy. That's just a beautiful word picture. He spills over with mercy. Just picture when, you, when, 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 you, when, when your cup tips over on the table and it just spills over. And here we are, the little dogs, just feeding on the crumbs. Jesus spills over with mercy. The Bible says, of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Some of you haven't even tasted it yet. I invite you, come to Jesus. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you're a Christian and you're starving, many Christians just live with guilt. Oh, I know I'm forgiven, but Jesus probably hates me. Oh, why do I keep doing? Listen, Jesus is full of mercy. He spills over with mercy. If you're a child of God, his heart is full of love for you, compassion. He wants to bless you. You're forgiven. You're not a filthy animal. You're not just a dirty sinner saved by grace. You're one of his 
children. You're a lamb in his arms. He spills over with mercy. And that'll bring healing to your soul. That'll change your life far more than somebody telling you, stop being angry. Stop being a sinner. Just feed on the mercy of Christ and recognize that this mercy is spilling over to the nations. And we're called by Jesus to join him in this. Are you praying for the nations? And that mercy is spilling over here in Bucks County. Pray that, that your children will, will drink of the mercies of Christ. The only thing that will bring a person to Jesus is Jesus. Do you know when, when that lady came to Christ from the restaurant, the girl who had been witnessing her to her for, for a year now, very sharp lady, she remembered me telling a story from four years ago. Four years ago, I told a story of how when we lived in Texas, we had a neighbor over, and Tammy was talking to this neighbor about the gospel. She's literally sharing Christ. And Tammy got up, and she went to work on lunch or do something, and I sat down, and I just continued pointing this lady to Christ, and she accepted Christ right there in our living room. And totally out of a joke, but later on, Tammy said to me, hey, Tom, you stole my fruit, right? <laughs> I had it right there, and you stole my fruit. And of course, we laugh at the sovereignty of God. As Paul says, one sows, one waters. God gives the increase. But anyway, this girl, I told that story about four years ago. This girl, that morning, when her friend got saved, and she had been witnessing to her for a year, she texts me, and she says, thanks a lot, Tom. You stole my fruit. <laughs> Listen, Jesus is the only one that can bring someone to Jesus. But he'll use you. And your reward will not be on whether you led them to Christ. The Bible says God gives the increase, but each one is rewarded for his labor. Nothing will motivate you to express Jesus' mercy than to first experience it. And so remember this, Jesus spills over with mercy. Number two, remember this, that Jesus sets our tongue free. That's not the last tongue that Jesus set free. Now, some of you, your tongue's been hanging out the window like a dog in the wind, right? And you're a Christian, and that little thing in your mouth is a tool that's powerful for the glory of God. And if it's not surrendered to Jesus, the book of James says it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So I want to encourage you to start using that thing for the glory of Jesus. Don't worry about what people think. I get tired of Christians going, I just witnessed by my life. People don't get saved if you just witness by your life. There's a reason that you have lips and you have a tongue. Use it for God's glory. We don't have to go around beating people with the Bible, but would you please speak up for Christ and say to people, I said to a man yesterday, I said, I would love to talk to you someday about your relationship with Christ. You let me know when you're ready. That man said to me, I'm ready, and I'm going to change my plans, and I'm going to meet with you. And he texted me last night. He said, I'll meet you today, Pastor Tom, at 2.30, anywhere. You tell me where. I'll be there at 2.30. His family members are, are going, what just happened? Use your tongue for Christ. I was fishing in the woods and I'm walking out and I'm singing, when through the woods and forest glades I wander. I'm belting out how great they are. There's nobody around. This fellow pops out and he says, hey, I didn't know I was going to get serenaded. 
I said, oh, no, sir. I said, I'm giving praise to the Lord. Now, he probably went home and said, honey, I'm at the craziest night, right? <laughs> but I don't care, right? I don't care. It was, oh, we're going to turn them off. They're not turned on. They're dead in their sins. Your tongue has been loosed. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let it just spill over. Don't be offensive, but don't be afraid to speak of what the Lord has done for you. And then finally, I just want to encourage you with this. Nobody will satisfy you like Jesus. They all ate and were satisfied. One of the biggest problems we have in America is we have so much stuff, but we have very little contentment. If only this, if only I had a different, if I just get this, if I can go to the mall and buy something, if I can get a new spouse, if I can get this promotion, if I can, if my kid's in the honor roll. Listen, can I remind you something I got to tell myself? Tom, that stuff does not satisfy. Do you know that poor little broken guy that I'm trying to lead to Christ who's demon-possessed? He literally in the middle, he goes, you're not tape recording, are you? He goes, because I don't trust ever anybody because all my life I've been nothing but hurt. And I said, you know something, son? I said, there's only one person that you can trust that'll never let you down, and that's Jesus. And so the Bible says to us, let your way of life be free from the love of money, because he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When, when we come to the point that we realize that Jesus is all we have, that's when we start to realize, you know what? Jesus is all I need. You might have the best marriage and the best kids in the world and the best vacations, but I can tell you this. That's not your greatest need. And anytime we attach ourselves to our looks, to our kids, to our anything, and it's not to Jesus, you're walking on sinking sand. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy your souls. Jesus is the only one that I can throw myself on him. And a long time ago, I decided to do what Charles Spurgeon did. I jumped into the ocean, I latched myself to that cross, and I'm trusting Jesus to take me there. And I'm not there yet, so I want you to pray for me. But I want you to sail along with me, clinging to Jesus and realizing that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there are a whole lot of people going, I don't know what's missing, I don't know what's missing. Can I save you a lot of trouble? It's Jesus. And if you haven't learned to just feed on him, to rest in him, to trust in him, the songwriter said, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just in simple faith to plunge me neath his healing, cleansing flood. Some of you, it's high time you run to Jesus. Maybe you haven't even had that experience yet. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here, try some of this. I'm holding them out for you right now. It's Jesus. He said, is any man thirsty? Let him come. You come to Jesus. You believe that he died to save you, and he will welcome you, and he will fill that emptiness in your life. Like the woman at the well, I was searching in things that couldn't satisfy. But then I gave my heart to Jesus, and I drew from the well that never shall run dry. And, 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 and I'll be honest, I dry up sometimes, but you know what? Jesus has plenty more. He has plenty more. My cup runneth over. So let's celebrate Jesus this morning as we close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we bless your name.
we thank you so much that you spill over with mercy, that you satisfy us, that you set us free to speak your praises. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not come to you, bring them right now. You just come to Jesus. Believe, look to him, and live. Cast your soul upon him and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Be born again by his sovereign grace and you will leave forgiven. And if you've lost your way, Christian, come again to the well and feed on Jesus. Lord, keep us in the palm of your hand and send us out. May we, may we truly make an impact in Bucks County. Father, thank you for bringing the nations to us. Thank you that we could take the gospel to the nations. May our team that goes to Syria have rich fruit and great safety. Be with our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Be with us as we engage in a daily basis on the routine of life with our spouse and kids. May it all be about Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Go with Jesus.